Welcome to the What We Lost podcast. Conservative MP Pierre Polyev and NDP MP Charlie Angus were two of the loudest voices to leverage We Charity in attempt to take down the Trudeau government. But inside the echo chamber, they had some help from pundits like Charity Intelligence's Kate Bahian, lawyer Mark Bloomberg, and Canada Land publisher Jesse Brown. I'm Martin Luther King III, and this is the What We Lost podcast. This is the true story of their possible motives and the ripple effect of their attacks on a children's charity. Powling on. The knives came out as soon as the opposition parties realized that to make their attacks on the prime minister and the liberal party stick, they had to cast we and the Kilbergers in the role of villain. And the media was only too happy to join in. Historically, Vague suspicions about the Kilbergers and their success, whether based on tall poppy syndrome, jealousy, or the brothers' own foibles and shortcomings, were not reason enough for most reputable reporters to dig into every aspect of their lives or activities of we. A cardinal rule of journalism is that something must be in the public interest to warrant invasion of privacy and potential reputational harm. We did not qualify, but now, with a political scandal involving taxpayer dollars, it was open season. Pundits and commentators spread myths and floated leading questions without seeking or providing answers. Politicians both fed into these narratives and fed off them, and traditional media outlets recycled it all it became a vicious loop of innuendo and inflammatory headlines that dragged on for almost a year. We Charity in Canada would never be the same. Of course, if you want to push a sensational narrative to fill column inches and generate clicks, one of the first tasks is to find an expert to say it for you. The more outrageous and outspoken, the better. The media's favorite commentators throughout the CSSG controversy, apart from Charlie Angus and Pierre Polyev, were charity analyst Kate Bain and lawyer Mark Bloomberg. Both eagerly accepted their roles as the chief critics of the WE organization, appearing in hundreds of news stories over the summer of 2020. And it appears to me that both adeptly leveraged their increased media presence for professional and financial success. Bain and Bloomberg advanced many narratives that I contend were misleading, and their commentary was seized on by politicians and journalists to become part of the larger story. A number of these misleading narratives are now assumed to be fact. Bain is the managing director of Charity Intelligence, CI, a self-appointed watchdog agency that she founded in 2006. CI analyzes charities on factors like financial transparency and social impact, then posts the results on its website. 
Bain likens her approach to that of a financial analyst who researches stocks to find the best investment opportunities for clients. CI is a small operation based on publicly available information. It has just five permanent staff, including Bain, and does not employ any full-time accountants or auditors. Research Director Greg Thompson admitted to the FINA committee that he and Bain are analysts, not auditors. CI has a three-member board of directors that includes Bain and Thompson. When CI launched its online search engine in 2011, it was the subject of a flattering profile in the Toronto Star, but it was met with considerable skepticism from other quarters. For an article posted to its website, Charity Village, a company that recruits people to work in the charitable sector, spoke to many who criticized CI's naive analysis of data and lack of understanding of CRA guidelines and how nonprofits in Canada actually work. Mark Bloomberg, for example, said that to telescope the issue of transparency into disclosure of an audited financial statement on the website of a charity is a simplification of the complexity of the issues. Malcolm Burroughs, the head of philanthropic advisory services for Scotia Wealth Management, concurred. CI seems to want to put all charities into a single space, and I think that does a real disservice, he said. They need to look at that before they make these huge generalizations in public. You can't have a one-size-fits-all standard of accountability in the sector. And imagine Canada's then-CEO, Marcel Lazier, offered a similar observation. They've taken a data-gathering model from the investment world, he noted, where you look at inputs and then tell your investors where to put their dollars. It's not that simple when you're looking at charities and at their outcomes and impacts. All this matters because when Bayhan later began commenting publicly on We Charity's involvement with the CSSG and presenting herself as an expert on the charitable industry, some of her assertions were based on exactly this kind of superficial and inaccurate analysis of the organization's financial statements and structure. For instance, she told journalist Jesse Brown in an interview for his Canada Land website that the charity was in breach of its bank covenants, a situation she characterized as a massive, massive red flag. She compared it to a person who is close to maxed out on her credit cards but can't stop spending. In fact, Though this was a simple technicality arising from We Charity's decision to shift its fiscal year from the standard calendar year to one that aligns with the academic year, that made sense because most of the expenditures for and work around the charity's domestic programs followed the educational calendar. The switch created a minor complication because We Charity's real estate mortgage agreements required the organization 
to earn a minimum level of revenue each year. In the year of the change, 2018, the charity did not demonstrate the required level of revenue because its financial report covered just eight months instead of 12. The shift also required the organization to defer some revenue to align with the year in which related program spending would occur. So the same issue came up in 2019. We charities lenders understood this and waived compliance with the covenants, and its auditors noted the waiver and footnotes to the organization's financial statements without using the word breach. It's very simple and uncontroversial stuff, but you would never know it if you listened to Bain. Although she presented herself as an unbiased observer, her public comments were often one-sided and carried charged language. In the more than 100 tweets she made about the charity between June and October 2020, she often used the hashtag, we have a problem. And in one, she asked sarcastically, does anyone think it is a good idea for We Charity to implement this $900 million government grant? Months later, as Mark and Craig were preparing to testify before the ETHI committee, she tweeted the words, Burger Time, with an image of a hamburger and a side of cauliflower alongside the brothers on a television screen. In dozens of interviews with print and TV media outlets, Bain relentlessly pushed her breached bank covenant narrative, implying that before the CSSG came along, We Charity was teetering like a house of cards. It quickly became a central plank in the opposition party's theory that the Kilbergers asked their friends in the liberal government for a bailout and were handed the CSSG. To this day, Bain's claim that We Charity was broke, which was grounded in nothing more than this bank covenant issue, remains part of conservative and NDP talking points and is a common misperception among Canadians. In my interviews with Mark and Craig, they cited several pivotal moments in the CSSG fiasco. This was one of them. Trudeau may have shifted the media spotlight when he said that We Charity was the only organization capable of delivering the program but Bain made sure the focus remained on the charity. One minute, we're referring questions to the PMO about Sophie's speaking engagements and the Prime Minister's failure to recuse himself, Craig said, and the next minute, we're dealing with people questioning the integrity of the charity. Every effort made to dispel this particular myth fell flat. This was an enormous problem both because the myth suggested that We Charity had somehow invented the CSSG to save itself from ruin and because it gave the charity's donors and partners pause about the stability of the organization. Eventually, the Stillman Family Foundation, led by longtime donor Andy Stillman, stepped in and commissioned a series of independent investigations to try to get to the bottom of things and eliminate any confusion. One report 
issued by Dr. Al Rosen in October 2020, squarely addressed Bain's claims. Rosen is a specialist in investigative and forensic accounting and a certified fraud examiner and forensic certified public accountant. He is famous for having predicted the collapse of telecommunications giant Nortel Networks almost two years before its demise. His work and views have been written about in the New York Times and many other publications. He has served as an expert witness on forensic accounting matters in hundreds of litigated cases. And he is author of Swindlers, Cons and Cheats, and How to Protect Your Investments from Them. Rosen did a deep dive into We Charity's books and concluded that prior to the CSSG, the charity was financially sound and not looking for a bailout. At issue seems to be whether we was in financial difficulty and was reliant on the CSSG contribution agreement to continue maintaining its charitable operations. Our analysis do not support such assertions of financial instability. He noted that the charity had $50 million in cash and real estate, and that these assets had been acquired specifically to help the organization manage year-to-year variations in funding. He acknowledged that like many Canadian entities, We Charity faced some economic uncertainty because of COVID, but it laid off staff to better ensure the long-term health and financial viability of the organization. The primary difference between our findings and assertions made by the organization's critics, he noted, is that ours were developed as a result of a detailed investigation into the organization's finances before and since the onset of the pandemic. Conversely, the allegations and narrative asserted by critics often appear to be largely based on conjecture and have not been substantiated in any convincing way by documentation or other evidence. In short, he wrote, critics' conclusions were reached without sufficient facts having been gathered and evaluated. In an interview, Rosen told me that he thought the concerns raised by commentators like Bain and parroted by the media and politicians were ill-informed and inconsistent with the facts and numbers. He also confirmed to me that he got all the information and cooperation he needed from the charity and its co-founders. Scott Baker, We Charity's chief operating officer, described the hours he spent with Rosen reviewing financial documents and answering his questions. A self-described math geek who holds a master's degree in mathematics from the University of Toronto, Scott enjoyed going through the charity's finances in painstaking detail with someone of Rosen's pedigree, but his face quickly clouded with frustration when he contrasted that approach to the media's reckless acceptance of Bain's so-called analysis. You cannot compare the two, he said. On one hand, you have Dr. Rosen, who has left no stone unturned 
and asked thoughtful questions when the answers were not clearly in front of him. On the other, you have Kate Bain, who has no accountants on her team and has based her entire analysis on one document she misinterpreted. There was no effort by the media to understand. Of course, it was frustrating. The second myth Bain launched into the media sphere concerned the relationship between We Charity and Me to We. In an appearance on CBC Radio's The Current, she argued that there is an inherent conflict in an organization that includes a public charity and a private social enterprise. And these two, she declared, are joined at the hip. But as we've already seen, that was exactly the point. The two entities work together, with the for-profit social enterprise supporting the activities and mission of the nonprofit charity. Even Bain seemed to acknowledge how common this is when she said many companies, big companies, public companies, have philanthropic arms. And yet that didn't seem to stop her from accusing we of improperly channeling millions of dollars from the charity to the social enterprise as part of a process she referred to as backwashing. We've never seen the backwash before, she told host Nala Ayed, noting that usually the money flows solely from the social enterprise to the charitable organization. But what she was describing was the purchase by We Charity at or below cost of volunteer trips and handmade artisan products that were an integral part of the charity's fundraising efforts. When We Charity bought things from Me to We, it paid an entity that was giving its profits back to the charity. If it had brought the same trips or products from an unrelated entity, that entity had no obligation to contribute anything to the charity. So far from being backwash, the flow of funds between the organizations was one aspect of an innovative partnership that, in my view, should serve as a model for others seeking to achieve maximum philanthropic impact. Throughout her many media appearances, Bain maintained that charity intelligence had long-standing concerns about the organization and that she was not simply jumping on the anti-we bandwagon, but this was belied by years of consistently good ratings for the charity from CI. In testimony to the FINA committee, Greg Thompson, the director of research, said, starting in 2014, CI rated We Charity with our highest four-star rating based on transparency, reporting, and overhead spending. We Charity ticked all of the boxes and performed well relative to other Canadian charities. And in 2019, we was given an A grade for transparency and reporting, the very things Bain was now calling into question. Other rating agencies agreed with CI's previous assessments. Charity Navigator, the largest evaluator of nonprofits in North America, gave WE a perfect four-star rating in fall 2020 with an overall score 
of 93.98 out of 100. No one reported any of this, and inexplicably, no one challenged Bain on her comments. Inside the echo chamber. If it's true that the squeaky wheel gets the grease, then it is even more true that the outraged wheel gets the microphone. This was certainly the case with Mark Bloomberg, a Toronto lawyer whose practice focuses on nonprofit and charity law. Among other things, Bloomberg is his firm's resident blogger, pinning nearly daily missives on law and the charitable sector. In the CSSG scandal, Bloomberg appeared to see a chance to inject himself into the story and gain attention for his long-held views about the need for expanded government funding in the charitable sector. As a vocal critic of social enterprise generally, Bloomberg was particularly suspicious of the partnership between We Charity and me to we and quickly became a source for negative news coverage, including on major outlets like the CBC and Global News. The media's frequent amplification of his criticism contributed to the public perception that there was some kind of funny business going on at WE. In his media appearances, Bloomberg persistently raised concerns about the supposed complexity of the WE organization and expressed the opinion that giving charities more freedom to set up businesses like me to we could actually hurt the sector instead of helping it. He eventually took those concerns to Ottawa, telling the ETHI committee, it's not that charities can't do business. There are charities that do lots of business. If you ever go to a hospital and you park in the parking lot, that's a related business. It could be perfectly fine. What is unusual here is that normally the charity owns the business. But as an expert in charity law, Bloomberg knew well, or should have, that when me to wees precursor organization was founded in 1999, an Ontario-based charity could not own a for-profit business. Even today, the CRA limits a charity's ability to operate an unrelated business, and a nonprofit engaged in any form of innovative social enterprise risk losing its charitable status if the CRA deems the businesses to be insufficiently related. Yet for some reason, Bloomberg failed to offer this important context whenever he talked about We Charity and Me to We. And interestingly, it doesn't appear that the media ever sought comment from Tories LLP or Miller Thompson LLP, even though these well-respected firms both have large nonprofit practices and advised We Charity on its structure and operations. Despite being the media's preferred pundits, Bloomberg and Bahan, to my knowledge, had no meaningful involvement with We Charity prior to the CSSG. They had never interviewed its board members or co-founders, had never attended any of its domestic education programs, had never visited any of the international development sites, 
and had never conducted any studies about the efficacy of the charity's programs. And yet, by December 2020, Behan, or CI, had appeared in 698 print and online articles, 356 television reports, and 659 radio reports, all to talk about We Charity, Me to We, the Killburgers, and the CSSG. And from late June to late October, Bloomberg appeared in at least 10 different newspaper articles on the CSSG, doubling the number of media appearances he'd made the previous year. On social media, he posted more than 60 tweets about We Charity in that same period, often taking the opportunity to also promote his law firm's services and online webinars. Why all the focus on Bloomberg and Behan? There were plenty of people, both within WE and externally, who could have offered insight into the way the organization really operated. Explanations were readily available, but no one in the media was interested. Asking the questions, it seemed, made for better storytelling than giving the answers. It was like one of those nightmares when you're in a room and you can see and hear everything, but no one can see or hear anything you're saying, Mark later told me. But in this case, we could never wake up from the nightmare. We kept trying to get the facts out there, but it was like we were invisible. No one wanted to hear us. Thanks to the numerous public statements about We Charity, Bloomberg, and particularly Bahan, gained the attention of opposition politicians and were eventually invited to appear before the FINA committee as witnesses. This could have been a good opportunity to educate the public on relevant issues like how nonprofits work and what information they must disclose. But instead, Bahan used her time to note that her organization had become a go-to for the media and to repeat many of her favorite claims about the relationship between We Charity and Me to We, the bank covenant, and the downgrade in We's CI rating. This was music to the ears of opposition MPs who used her testimony as an excuse to read their own baseless allegations into the record. NDP MP Peter Julian, for example, suggested, without citing any evidence, that We Charity could somehow divert government funds to its social enterprise partner and from there straight into the Killburgers' pockets. Are you concerned, he asked Bahan, about monies being potentially redirected to one of the for-profit entities that are part of this very labyrinthine organization? Bayan herself spun a new yarn about We Charity possibly engaging in some kind of bait-and-switch scheme that even the government was unaware of. Maybe people, as we are all learning, she said, weren't aware that the contract for the CSSG was with the We Charity Foundation, which is very different from We Charity. She wondered aloud, without any evidence, if perhaps the organization had a pattern of duping partners into thinking they were entering into an agreement with the charity 
only to realize later that Midawi's name was on the contract. Meanwhile, she was noncommittal when MPs tried to get her to acknowledge some basic holes in her theories about We Charity and the CSSG. When Quebec MP Annie Katrakis pointed out the CI didn't downgrade the charity's rating until July 10th, which was after the CSSG announcement had been made, Bayhan replied, that's an excellent point. That's a point our research team will be going through. Caltrakis's observation meant that far from raising all kinds of red flags, as Bayhan and the opposition MPs kept implying, the charity was, in fact, in good standing when the government decided to give it the contract for the CSSG. And similarly, Bayhan had no real answer for Toronto MP Adam Vaughn when he asked if she was aware that many charities most Canadians would consider highly reputable, including Habitat for Humanity, the YWCA, and the Canadian Hearing Foundation, had received lower ratings from CI than We Charity had. Bayan was also questioned by Liberal MP Francesco Sabara about previous eras in CI's reporting. I appreciate the work you are doing at Charity Intelligence, he said. It's important, but it's also a double-edged sword because when you make a wrong call, you can actually hurt a charity significantly. I don't know who's doing the due diligence on Charity Intelligence on your calls. You have had to apologize in the past when you've made the wrong call and when the damage is, I would say, done. Sabato was referring to disparaging comments Bayan made in 2019 about the Winnipeg Jets Youth Charity, the True North Youth Foundation. Bayan claimed that among other problems, the foundation was overspending on fundraising. Later, she issued a formal apology, acknowledging that CI's own report showed the foundation's fundraising and administrative cost fell within a reasonable range. She also offered contrition for calling the foundation a puck hog in a city news interview and ended with a mea culpa for her unfortunate mischaracterization of TNYF. But when challenged on these matters by Sabara, Bayan claimed she did nothing wrong. Our research report stands, she said. Pundits like Bayan and Bloomberg can cause real harm by offering claims, but no evidence to back those claims. When their views are amplified by news outlets that give them a platform without doing any due diligence of their own, their credibility in the eyes of the public grows. This encourages more media outlets to call, which in turn leads to even greater exposure. It's a feedback loop that can be almost impossible to stop. It might sound like a game, but it's anything but for the people who are watching their reputations being called in the question. They were given license to say whatever they wanted with no consequence or consideration for the outsized impact they were having, Mark said. It was one thing to come after me and Craig, 
but they were attacking the integrity of the board, the staff, our donors, everyone who had put so much energy into building something meaningful. Welcome to Canada Land. The Kilbergers' relationship with the media is complicated. Love-hate, you might say. That early experience with Saturday Night Magazine was formative. The article accused the Kilberger family of bilking funds from the charity, and a painful legal battle ensued, with the magazine eventually settling the action and paying damages. And it taught the brothers to approach journalists with a degree of skepticism and to fight back hard when they or the organization they had built were being unfairly maligned. At the same time, as Craig has frequently noted, the charity as a whole was inspired by a news article he read as a child. Had that journalist not been moved to tell the story of Iqbal Masih, the murdered Pakistani child laborer, Free the Children might never have been created. If it wasn't for that story, I don't know where I would be right now or what my life would look like, Craig told me. I've never met that journalist, but I've always wanted to thank them because that one article changed my life and positively impacted the lives of millions of children. It is also true that through most of its history, We Charity enjoyed glowing and influential media coverage. Over the years, the brothers had appeared on such high-profile programs as 60 Minutes, The Oprah Winfrey Show, and The Colbert Report, and they contributed regular columns to the Toronto Star, the Globe and Mail, and some post-media dailies. Editors and publishers from news outlets across Canada, including the Vancouver Sun, Edmonton Journal, and Calgary Herald, also appeared on the We Day stage to speak to the young audience. In one instance, the Globe and Mail's editor-in-chief, David Wamsley, took to the stage a copy of his paper in hand to speak about the importance of media literacy. So there's no doubt that the charity and the Kilbergers had many positive and long-standing relationships with media partners, and they relied on those relationships to bring attention to their work as any organization would. Then along came Canada Land and We Charity's Bette Noir, Jesse Brown. Brown got his start in traditional media, working for CBC Radio, where he was disciplined for fabricating content and contributing to magazines like McLean's and Toronto Life. He has made a career of taking on sacred cows and is perhaps most famous for partnering with Toronto Star reporter Kevin Donovan to break the story of the sexual assault allegations against CBC Radio hosts Gian Gomeshi. That collaboration ended. However, when Brown wanted to publish, before Donovan felt full due diligence had been done. Today, Brown is the founder, owner, publisher, editor, feature writer, and podcast host of Canada Land. In January 2015, the Globe and Mail's media critic, Simon Haupt, profiled Brown in his column saying he views himself as a fearless David taking on the Goliath 
of Canadian corporate media. But Haupt also noted that Brown has a track record of playing fast and loose with facts. He has been accused of sensationalizing stories, relying too heavily on rumor and innuendo, and making allegations without doing the work to substantiate them. But his small media footprint, his website had just over a million visitors in all of 2020, compared to the Globe and Mail's average of 4.5 million weekly visitors that same year, is disproportionately influential because of his sensationalist commentary on the media industry. Journalists follow him for the schadenfreude of watching other media outlets get taken down and out of dread that they themselves will be his next victims. We and Brown first collided in March 2015 when he published an article alleging that the CBC had pulled a documentary about volunteerism at the last minute because it was critical of me to we. In fact, the documentary was simply rescheduled because it included we day footage for which rights had not been cleared and it had to be re-edited. There was no critical coverage of me to we in the film and the company was not one of the tour operator's profile. Two weeks and three articles later, that seemed to be the end of it. But in October 2018, it became apparent that Brown had not forgotten about We After All. That month, Canada Land published an article charging that the charity was connected to no fewer than three companies known to use child and slave labor in their supply chain, and that the organization promoted products made in part by children, including Hershey's products that contain cocoa farmed by child laborers in West African countries, and Kellogg's products that contain palm oil farmed by child laborers in Indonesia. The article and its accompanying podcast also just happened to kick off Canada Land's crowdfunding season. Brown spent more than 13 minutes of the podcast soliciting support for his website, then followed up with the same plea on every subsequent episode for a month. The article was written by a rookie journalist named Jaron Kerr. On the podcast, Brown explained that he had assigned reporter after reporter to do a story on We before finally in the summer of 2018 asking Kerr to take it on. He had a story in mind, Kerr said on stage at the Investigative Reporters and Editors Conference in May 2019. He sold me on the story as, you know, you'll have time, you'll have resources, you'll have legal insurance, give it a shot. For Kerr, it was an opportunity to make a name for himself. I saw this as an opportunity when my contract was ending at the Toronto Star to try to make a splash before I had to consider other options, he told reporters at the conference. The article relied heavily on information attributed to anonymous former employees, was riddled with errors, and included digitally altered financial documents and a digital image of a non-existent Kellogg cereal box that had Me To We's logo on the front. This was billed on the podcast as extensive proof that We Charity was lying when it said 
it did not condone or support child labor. But the image of the cereal box was simply a mock-up someone had created to pitch me to we on a potential partnership that never came to fruition. Journalist Mark Burry amusingly offered $10,000 to anyone who could find an actual box of frosted mini-wheats with the Me to We logo. The prize has never been claimed. Not sure how best to combat the Canada Land story, We Charity retained the services of one of Canada's most respected jurists, former Ontario Court of Appeals Justice Stephen Gouch. He was asked to conduct a review of Canada Land's various allegations as well as We Charity's responses and source documentation. In his findings, he wrote that the Canada Land claims were without merit. We wanted to ignore it, Dalal recalled, but it was hard to do. Social media today amplifies everything, especially sensational content. People like Jesse Brown can put anything they want online and it gets retweeted and shared without any context or fact-checking. We were getting calls from all of our stakeholders, teachers, students, sponsors, and these false statements were causing real damage to the organization. We felt like we had no choice but to push for accuracy. When we asked for corrections, however, Canada Land refused. We had never experienced anything like this before, and we really didn't know how to react, Mark recalled. There was thinking that if we provided the reporter with as much information as possible, his narrative would shift. It didn't, obviously. Lawyers got involved, with one noting that it is sadly evident that salacious articles and podcasts increases page views and clicks, and thus directly serves your financial interest as the owner of Canada Land website with revenue generated from advertisements. On November 6, 2018, a notice of liable was served. Predictably, this salvo only made Brown more interested in pursuing we, and the charity became a regular feature of his weekly podcast. In the next few months, Jaron Kerr also published two more stories, Inside the Cult of Kilberger and How the Kilbergers Handled the Press. The latter article alleged that We Charity's relationships with media partners for events like We Day had given the organization an enormous platform and made journalists and editors reluctant to publish negative stories. Nearly two dozen sources, comprising journalists and former WE employees, wrote Kerr, have described to Canada Land a concerted effort by WE to meticulously and sometimes forcefully manage their media profile to mitigate and minimize criticism. In reality, WE Charity had issued only one notice of liable in over 20 years to Canada Land. This article prompted a second notice of liable. At this point, it's worth noting that sometimes we took a bad situation and made it worse. The Kilbergers often felt compelled to combat any error 
with a full-throated defense. Over the years, many board members, including me, had questioned whether it was counterproductive to respond in such an aggressive manner. In fact, Jesse Brown later revealed just how counterproductive it could be, telling CBC's Fifth Estate, my impulse when people fight that hard is you have to wonder why. But whenever this issue was raised, the Kilbergers replied with an eloquent explanation of why this particular set of errors was particularly egregious or why other advisors who were in favor of a more combative response were correct. In most cases, the board deferred to the co-founders. We understood that a charity's most valuable asset is its reputation. A charity operates on trust. No trust, no donations, no impact. And to be fair, it is hard to fault Mark and Craig for wanting to push back on a tax on a lifetime of work. On reflection, however, I wish we had sometimes urged restraint more strongly. Instead of putting out the fire, we occasionally pour gasoline on it. In any event, the organization's strategy for dealing with Canada land seemed to work at least for a moment. Just as we was gearing up for a legal fight, Canada land's intensely negative coverage came to a screeching halt. In a June 2019 podcast episode titled, A Former We Employee Speaks Out, Brown seemed to have recognized that there was no grand scheme afoot. There's no smoking gun, he said. There's no big scandal. One thing that became really clear to us is that we is legit. This was never going to be a story about a crooked charity. Perhaps not surprisingly, though, Brown's tune changed again when the CSSG story took over the headlines and he wanted a starring role. He started regularly, complaining about getting no credit for being the first to report negatively on the charity, and he churned out new anti-we content at a furious rate. In July 2020 alone, Canada Land posted 10 stories and two podcast episodes about the organization, covering everything from payments to Margaret Trudeau to trips made by Bill Marno, to the groundbreaking news that the accounting department was walled off from the rest of the office in the open concept We Global Learning Center. Even today, Brown is still at it. He recently released a five-part podcast series called The White Saviors that was a rehash of his previous allegations. While on the attack, Brown nevertheless often positioned himself as a victim of We Charity's aggressive tactics. His most common claim was that the organization had hired private investigators to conduct research on him as an intimidation tactic. In reality, the charity's attorney, Peter Downard, at Faskin LLP, one of Canada's most highly regarded defamation lawyers, indicated that he had simply done a standard background check as part of preparing a potential liable suit against Brown and Canada Land. In a private message to Brown in response to allegations that he was being improperly targeted, Downward stated, the report you ask about 
is a typical example of due diligence in advance of commencing a libel action. It's typical where a client has been irresponsibly and maliciously attacked. Brown made the exchange public by posting it to Twitter. On July 20th, Brown announced on Twitter that like Bahian, he had been called to testify before the opposition-dominated FINA committee. On this, at least, he got a fair bit of pushback from fellow journalists. David Aiken, chief political correspondent for Global News, replied, Why? Was there something you neglected to report on that you were going to tell the committee? If not, just tell the MPs to read what you wrote. MPs should not be summoning journalists to testify at Commons committees. Terrible precedent. And James McLeod from the Financial Post wrote, As with many Jesse Brown things, it's fun to imagine how Jesse Brown would react if a journalist at the CBC or Legacy Media outlet did this. Hungry for Clicks Canada Land's sensationalist and obsessive style of reporting about we quickly began to impact the style and tone of coverage by traditional news outlets as well. As early as July 10th, the media was referring to the CSSG debacle, which, let's not forget, was about the government's approach to awarding contracts and whether cabinet ministers had or had not complied with ethics rules as the WE charity scandal. Not the CSSG controversy or the Trudeau scandal. Not even the WE charity affair, a blunder term that was attached to Trudeau's prior ethics scandals. The name stuck, and from then it quickly became an exercise in piling on. Many reporters displayed an almost fanatical hunger for more negative WE content and the willingness to use the charity to discredit the government began to make once staid Canadian news outlets look more like the nakedly partisan broadcasters south of the border. Between June 25th and the end of November 2020, WE Charity, WE Charity Foundation, Meet a WE, and various other WE entities were mentioned in the press more than 129,000 times, and the Kilberger name appeared another 15,000 times. It was like watching a car crash, Craig said. We knew that people overseas would suffer and lives would be lost when projects couldn't be fulfilled. But no one seemed to care, Mark added. We charity is far from perfect, and if someone criticizes a mistake that we've made, that's fair. But there is a difference between fair and false. Mark recalls having to explain to his elderly parents and others that there was no truth to two Globe and Mail articles that implied the charity was the focus of an RCMP investigation. The RCMP confirmed that it was simply examining carefully the government's decision to award we the contract, something it was required to do given opposition MPs' direct request for an inquiry. This was not by any stretch the same thing as a criminal investigation 
into we. But coverage like this left a lasting impression that colored public perceptions of the charity and the Kilbergers and made it harder for them to be heard when trying to set the record straight. Donors, staff, and teachers who read the articles inferred that we were under criminal investigation. That is a serious thing. For our young staff members, in particular, it was scary. For others, it was embarrassing because they were constantly answering questions from friends and family. We all found ourselves having to defend something we cared deeply about. The Globe's reporting on the organization was as varied as it was constant. Paul Waldy reported that We Charity U.S. had paid so-called political consultants to undermine the media using unscrupulous tactics. We Charity spent more than $600,000 U.S. dollars on political consultants in Washington last year, 2019, Waldy asserted, including a firm co-founded by a trio of longtime Republican Party strategists. In fact, those funds were paid to a psychologist to provide well-being support to WE staff and to a D.C.-based PR firm hired to launch two WE days in the Baltimore, D.C. area, hardly a political pursuit. A few days later, Waldy eared, again by substantially overstating, by more than $100 million, the level of donations WE Charity had received from major U.S. corporations such as Allstate and Microsoft. This mistake appeared to stem from Waldy's misreading of the charity's U.S. tax filings. We Charity was not asked for comment prior to publication, and the Globe refused to correct the error. When the charity requested corrections, it was rebuffed. So the organization appealed to the public editor, Sylvia Stead. We saw her as an ombudsman, someone who would uphold the Globe's journalistic standards, Craig explained to me. We weren't getting anywhere with the journalists or the editors, but we thought as the person responsible for journalism ethics at the Globe, she would at least meet us part way. She did not. In one remarkable instance, Stead refused to address the fact that the Globe was misreporting the total amount of the CSSG agreement with We Charity as $912 million rather than $543 million. This was not nitpicking. As we've already seen, the $912 million figure had been used by critics to tag the CSSG as a billion-dollar program. The correct number was on the public record, as was the text of the contribution agreement. Yet the Globe misreported this on more than 100 occasions. Still, Stead remarkably argued that because Google searches yielded more results for the higher figure, the error did not require correction. She wrote, Google, we charity plus $912 million or $900 million equals 188,000 results. We Charity plus $543 million equals 24,400 results. Things were no better over at the Toronto Sun, 
where Brian Lilly, the paper's political columnist, had hopped gleefully on the anti-Wee bandwagon, starting with an article titled, Maybe We Should Have Been Looking at We Charity Earlier, published on July 7, 2020. Lilly spent the entire month seemingly writing only about We and astonishing 27 articles in all. At one point, Lilly published Mark's home address. As a result, Mark's and Craig's families began receiving death threats by phone, email, and tweet, including several directed at their young children. The police had to be contacted on multiple occasions. While Mark was explaining to his family what happened, I frantically called Post Media, parent company of the Toronto Sun, to explain about the death threats Craig explained. I told them there were young children in the house and the police were giving us warnings. I was pleading with them to, at a minimum, remove the specific house number from the online article. I still cannot believe that they refused. On July 20th, in a piece titled We Flips for Real Estate, Lilly made multiple errors about We Charity's chief financial officer, Victor Lee, who he implied was selling We Real Estate to family members at below market rates. The property was purchased from Free the Children, the charity now called We, Lilly wrote. We is where buyer, Mingzi Lee's father, Victor, works as chief financial officer. In fact, there was no family relationship between the two. When social media users pointed out his error, which was perhaps grounded in the xenophobic notion that two people named Lee must be related, the online story was quietly changed without any public correction or note for readers who had seen the earlier version. The same article also included several mischaracterizations regarding the private real estate holdings of Fred and Teresa Kilberger. Intermixing We Charity property and private family property, Lilly wrote that the Kilberger family traded some pieces of real estate multiple times before transferring them to a numbered company for what is recorded as a zero transaction. He was told by Wee's media relations team multiple times that the properties in question were never owned by Wee Charity or Me to Wee. The transactions were part of a personal inheritance planning by the 80-year-old Kilberger parents. Other media outlets also zeroed in on Wee's real estate holdings with dozens of articles pointing to this as evidence of impropriety. Real estate is central to the Wee slash Kilberger story, read a headline in the Toronto Sun. The National Post declared, Property Brothers, Kilbergers facing scrutiny over Wee Organization's $50 million real estate empire. Unfortunately, many of the claims in these articles, both expressed and implied, were based on a misunderstanding of the charity's mission and on statements from experts that simply did not apply to WE. For example, the article in the National Post described WE Charity 
as one of the largest international development organizations in the country, and then implied that there was something nefarious about these types of organizations investing in real estate. Some of the biggest names in international development, the article said, own either no real estate or significantly less than We Charity, Canada Revenue Agency filing show. The reporter noted that the paper had consulted legal experts and they were of the opinion that this kind of setup is more typical for religious institutions like the Catholic Church or large hospitals that require massive premises rather than an international development organization. Sounds pretty shady, unless you understand that domestic programming was a much larger part of We Charity's budget, and overseas development work was only a fraction of the activities taking place at We Charity's Toronto headquarters, the organization's main real estate asset. The building was more than just an office space. It was also the vehicle through which We Charity delivered much of its domestic programming, with the entire first floor dedicated to hosting visiting school groups. Instead of suggesting that We Charity was analogous to international aid organizations that do not provide programming in Canada, the article should have compared it to other domestic charities that deliver youth programs, like the Boys and Girls Club, the YMCA, Scouts Canada, and science centers in various cities, all of which hold substantially more real estate than we. Attempts to get the National Post to correct the misleading statements were ignored. The fact is, purchasing real estate is a completely ordinary and low-risk investment strategy in the Canadian charitable sector. Even lawyer Mark Bloomberg, hardly Wee's biggest backer, acknowledged that real estate ownership is common and that We Charity owned relatively little in comparison to other Canadian charities. While 22,000 charities own real estate of some sort, Bloomberg wrote in a 2020 article in Foundation Magazine, over 10,000 charities have real estate valued at over a million dollars, and over 640 charities had real estate which was worth more than the $43 million of real estate held by We Charity. For We Charity, real estate served as a form of reserve fund. All charities need such a fund to provide a cushion for unplanned expenditures or events. Say, for example, a global pandemic or a political scandal. Some choose to invest their reserve fund in the stock market. We Charity chose real estate instead. It's that simple. We Charity's board, for its part, had always weighed in on and voted to approve every real estate transaction. As part of that process, the board repeatedly sought independent advice. Going back to a report prepared by former Supreme Court Justice Peter Corey in 2011. I covered that back in Chapter 2. More recently, Justice Gouge was retained to assess the reasonableness of We Charity's reserve fund policy. In his 2019 report on this matter, he noted 
that real estate provides a predictable and low-risk investment, particularly in the booming Toronto market, and that a reserve of somewhere between three months to three years of operating expenses is most appropriate for charities. We Charities Reserve Fund, through real estate, represented eight to nine months of its annual operating revenue. Former Wisconsin Governor Scott McCollum conducted a similar assessment and wrote, based on a thorough review and my 40 years of experience working in the nonprofit sector, I can conclude that We Charities' investments in real estate assets represent a best-in-class example for other nonprofits to follow. The charity's investments have been prudent, low-risk, and carried out in close consultation with We Charities' board of directors, who are well-qualified and experienced in overseeing such decisions. So real estate investment is both a common strategy and an entirely proper one. Early in its history, We Charity looked to peers like the YMCA, Scouts Canada, and Oxfam, all of which owned their operational properties to help ensure fiscal stability, maximize program delivery, and facilitate long-term impact. The organization realized that adopting the same approach was smart and fiscally prudent. It made no sense to pay rent to house a huge domestic team, particularly when the charity had donors like Hartley Richardson, David Eisenstadt, Peter Gilgan, Mario Romano, and Fred Losani, who wanted to make targeted donations for the specific purpose of helping the organization acquire real estate. No youth fundraising or international development donations were used. Former We Charity board chair, Michelle Douglas, made exactly this point when she wrote an October 2019 testimonial in response to media inquiries. I'm pleased to speak about our real estate philosophy which has been part of our operations over the past 12 years, she said. We Charity adopted an early philosophy of using real estate as a stabilizing organizational asset. Our philosophy has proven to be a demonstrably positive approach that supports our mission. Unfortunately, all this nuance was ignored by the media. Journalists were quick to jump the gun whenever a potential story emerged. In one striking instance, Travis Dunraj, then the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, tweeted speculation that we was packing up its headquarters because he spotted 11 U-Haul trucks out front of WeGLC. After tweeting out this false news, Dunraj reached out to the PR team to ask if the trucks had been hired by the organization. He was told there was a U-Haul depot nearby. To his credit, Dunraj was the rare journalist who acknowledged and corrected his error. Deleted previous tweet in regards to at We Movement and U-Haul vehicles. I should not have linked the two. There's a dealer about 1.1 kilometers away. And upon further investigation, 
Turns out you can drop off vehicles on Queen Street. Apologies, but the damage was done. The content was already circulating via social media, and many people readily assumed the organization was closing shop or carting away damning evidence. This wasn't the most egregious mistake, but it was an example of the shoot-first mentality of the media. It was open season, the law said, and no one seemed to care if they were correct as long as they were first. As a board member, I felt helpless in the face of this never-ending avalanche of bad news. So did everyone at We Charity. Efforts to set the record straight proved fruitless, even when the We Charity team worked through the night to present accurate facts in response to false reporting and did get corrections. They were made long after the initial story had been read and ingested by the public. Anyone who has ever tried to recall an unintended email knows the feeling. What's read can't be unread. Meanwhile, reports by people like Dr. Rosen and former Ontario Deputy Solicitor General Matt Torgan, which debunked the myths relating to the CSSG long before Ethics Commissioner Mario Dion did the same in mid-2021, received scant attention. We also created a transparency website to house information regarding reviews of its programs and operations over the years. Interested journalists and other Canadians could find, among other things, reports from auditors, HR firms, retired Supreme Court and appellate court justices, B Corp and fair trade accreditors, pedagogy experts, the Tread Right Foundation relating to global sustainable travel, plan to protect relating to youth safety, and years of impact studies by consulting firm Mission Measurement. Everything seemingly went unread or was ignored. To this day, I'm shocked by the speed and ferocity with which a negative narrative pushed by a small group of fringe journalists and pundits was so thoroughly embraced by the mainstream media. And I'm dismayed by the absence of meaningful coverage of the perspectives of the key beneficiaries of We Charity. Who listened to the students who lost access to the CSSG in the middle of a pandemic? How could journalists cover this story without providing the perspective of millions of school kids who relied on We Schools programming to cope with challenges like bullying and depression? What about the teachers who implemented the WE curriculum as part of the often thankless work of educating our children? And what did the countless women, men, and children helped by WE's programs in the developing world have to say? All these voices were almost entirely ignored. Testimonial, Jennifer Torrey. Jennifer Torrey, is the former Chief Administrative Officer of the Royal Bank of Canada, where she was responsible for the bank's brand, marketing, citizenship, communications, 
procurement, and real estate functions globally. She currently serves as a director on the boards of BCE Inc. and Allied REIT, is chair of the board of the Toronto International Film Festival, and sits on the board of the Sunnybrook Hospital Foundation. In 2019, she was appointed a member of the Order of Canada. I've been involved with We Charity for nearly 15 years. I have taken trips with my family to visit the organization's international projects, attended many We Day events, and visited classrooms to observe We Schools programming firsthand. And I have proudly donated to the charity and helped with fundraising by introducing WE to others in my network. I also held a senior leadership position at one of WE's biggest corporate partners. This partnership started with a focus on clean water initiatives and grew to include support for WE Days across Canada. It was far more than corporate marketing. It was an opportunity to engage employees and their families in social good and devote resources to a cause that galvanized young people to act and see themselves as agents of change. In my view, corporate engagement with We Charity was a vehicle to make a difference and fulfill corporate social responsibility goals that companies could aspire to. As a donor with decades of involvement supporting charities of all sizes, I can say that the reporting and stewardship I received from We Charity on the use of my contributions were as comprehensive and transparent as I've experienced. This combined with the visible impact that my donations had on young women being able to go to school, clean water, reaching villages, and the overall development of partner communities is why I felt like We Charity was a good choice for my charitable giving. It has been hard to listen to the many allegations leveled against the charity that I know are not based on facts. Along with so many supporters of We Charity, we considered ways to assist in getting the charity side of the story out. But the vitriol was intense and it did not seem the media wanted to listen. Once the dust settles, I will absolutely support whatever comes next for the Killburgers and the organization. Canadian young people in particular would benefit from a new beginning. And for those who might have wanted to support the charity and its mission, the intensity of negative press coverage created a climate of fear. In dozens of interviews, people told me about vile name-calling on social media and concerns about being unflatteringly featured in the press. No one wanted to be part of the firestorm. While the media is certainly not responsible for every crazy tweet or email, it does need to be careful about the climate it creates. Otherwise, voices are stifled and important stories go untold. This inability to be heard affected even powerful people who are not often dismissed. For instance, Gail Asper, a well-known philanthropist, 
corporate lawyer and officer of the Order of Canada, told me that she had written an opinion letter and sent it to the top ranks of the Globe and Mail. In it, she outlined her grave concerns about the media's coverage of WE, an organization that had supported her efforts at Winnipeg's Canadian Museum for Human Rights. I wrote a very passionate letter that said the opposition was attacking the government for not moving quickly enough. And here we get them moving quickly and find one of our most trusted organizations to deliver the CSSG. And now there's a scandal about this? And what about all the kids who didn't get to do all this work? Is anybody upset about that? But the letter never got published. Despite her reputation and standing, the Globe had no interest in presenting her views. Looking back, Asper thinks the media was encouraging sensationalism to attract readers and viewers. I think it was yellow journalism, she told me. I think many journalists were gleefully indifferent to the pain they were causing, not just to the charity, but to the kids. Nobody seemed to care about the tens of thousands of young people who would have benefited from the Canada Student Service Grant Program. Randall Mang, founder and president of Randall Anthony Communications, felt the same sting of rejection. His company is a leading supplier of custom marketing and graphic design content to the Globe and Mail and provides marketing communication services to other brands. Speaking to me from his home in Sydney, British Columbia, he teared up when describing the transformative influence We Charity had on his daughter, Naya, and by extension, his whole family. Together, they went to many We Days and visited We Villages projects in Kenya and India. Disturbed by what he was reading in the media, Mang penned an op-ed describing his family's experiences and sent it to various media outlets, including the CBC, The Globe, The Taiyi, and Post Media. None bit. Eventually, he published a longer version of the article on Medium. Many staff and board members, teachers and students, also wrote op-eds that were rejected by The Globe and Mail, National Post, Vancouver Sun, Winnipeg Free Press, Calgary Herald, Edmonton Journal, Ottawa Citizen, and other publications. Most submissions were never even acknowledged. So what happened to the Canadian media landscape? Why did the press present so many headlines that raised questions and then give short shrift to the answers? Why was so much ink spilled on creating controversy and very little on investigating whether the controversy had a factual basis? The short answer to these questions is the same thing that has happened to news media across the globe, especially in the United States. Year after year, trust in the U.S. media declines, largely as a result of increased political polarization, which turned supposedly unbiased news organizations into mouthpieces 
for whichever of the two political parties they align with. Some of this polarization can be attributed to shrinking revenues for the sector as a whole. Journalism is a business, and business is down. According to a 2018 study by the Washington-based Pew Research Center, U.S. newspaper circulation fell to its lowest level since 1940, the first year for which data was available, while advertising revenue declined by 62% in the decade between 2008 and 2018. With fewer ad dollars up for grabs, media outlets are encouraged to appeal more to those on the left or right of the spectrum than those in the middle. Reinforcing a consumer's beliefs creates loyalty, and generating sensational headlines creates new consumers. The situation in Canada has not been much better. The sector has struggled so much that in 2018, the federal government developed a bailout program that provides up to $600 million in tax credits and incentives for media organizations. Even so, the industry has been forced to do more with less. Fewer reporters, less advertising revenue, and an increasingly competitive market mean that stories that generate clicks are elevated over day-to-day -day news. Put simply, the more clicks on an article, the more money for content owners. It's a recipe for salacious headlines and inflammatory stories, and it's antithetical to nuanced reporting that takes the time to tell all sides of a story. Columnist Frank Bruni, in his final opinion piece for the New York Times, took himself and other journalists to task for what he referred to as swimming with the snide tide. Looking back over his 10 years with the Times, he lamented the toxic tenor of American discourse and the ease with which journalists shove ambivalence and ambiguity aside. Nuance, he noted, doesn't make for good talking points. There aren't as many clicks, he wrote, in cooling tempers and complicating people's understanding of situations as there are in stoking their rage. Too many columns are less sober analyses than snarky stand-up acts or primal screams. The stand-up and the scream sell. Thank you for listening. You can download more episodes of What We Lost wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about Tafik Rangwala's national bestseller or to buy the book, visit whatwelost.com and discover the real story behind the CSSG controversy.